Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Academy Rewind, the fortnightly podcast where we take a look at the Oscars from years past. I'm Tim, and with me, as always, is my man who has so much pride in the Yankees that he's just going to watch it over and over and over again until he dies. It's Palmer. How are you today? You mean dead like Lou Gehrig? Ha <laughs> ha! That's, uh, that's yep. too soon. He, he was Twice. such a nice man. <laughs> no, it was such a nice man. Oh, no. So terrible. What an awful joke that you keep making. Well, um, we can try this a third time. But I can guarantee you it's going to be the same joke. <laughs> nope. No, it's not. Anyway, um, we're here to talk about the 1943 Best Picture nominees. Uh, they are as follows. Wake Island, King's Row, The Pride of the Yankees, Random Harvest, The Pied Piper, Yankee Doodle Dandy, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Talk of the Town, 49th Parallel, and Mrs. Minivere. Palmer, what won Best Picture? Mrs. Minivere. That is correct. I'm sure that you saw that somehow scrolling through your fun facts in there somewhere or did you legitimately think that was the best picture uh no i when i did my google search of movies i accidentally just typed in 1943 best picture and it popped up instead of best picture nominees gotcha so yeah it spoils the fun yeah so we're gonna go to mrs minivere last then let's start with wake island directed by john farrow written by wr burnett and frank butler starring brian don don levy um mcdonald carey robert preston and William Bendix. We just watched a Robert Preston movie last episode, uh, The Music Man, uh, nominated for Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Bendix, Director, and Writing for Original Screenplay. This movie won no awards. Off to a great start. Uh, the plot is takes place in December of 1941 with no hope of relief or resupply. A small band of United States Marines tries to keep the Japanese Navy from capturing their island base. Kind of based on a true story, the, the actual, like, the actual um, you know, a Battle of Wake Island. Um, this movie was fine. I thought it actually kind of started pretty strong. I was like, oh, we're going to get some fun army dynamics. And look at these colorful cast of characters. He's so scrappy. And, oh, that guy's mad. And I just kind of got bored with it as the movie went on. Really? Well, how about, uh, yeah, I, it wasn't bad. Don't get me wrong. Like, I didn't, I, I just, it's well documented on the show that I, it, you have to, like, really get me to care about war movies in in a military in the military aspect or the military aspect of war and i just like i it started strong i was i was with it with some of the some of the characters and what they were about and then i just kind of was like by the end of it i was like all right i'm good like i I watched it and that might be just because we watched you know 10 movies for this episode Mm -hmm. and i watched them in pretty rapid succession but that's kind of how i felt about it what about you uh i enjoyed it i i i liked the cast of characters i did like that the entire movie wasn't just a battle like you saw in the lives of the characters uh, prior to that. Uh, it reminded me a little of, say, like Pearl Harbor where it was just like people like, l- you know, lying around on the beach and they were like, ah, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. Nothing's ever going to happen. And then they get and then they get like the tough as nails commander and then they're like, oh, no. Oh, no. He's tough as nails. Right. Oh, no. Wait. He was right to be as tough as nails because we're actually at war. But we yeah. weren't yet, yeah. yeah. So I would imagine this takes place like a day or two after Pearl Harbor? December 40, December, well, it just says December 41, right. but 
I'm pretty sure that they Pearl Harbor's already been attacked because I think they make mention. Yes, of it. because um, somebody's wife died in the attack. That's right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was enjoyable. The yeah, you know, it was it was well acted. The the uh, action sequences were done really well, except for a few parts that were very like early cinema action where uh, where like someone will fire a gun or something at them and in no in no world with actual physics would would it hit the person and they still like fall down yep yep yeah like, <laughs> oh no a gunshot sound and they fall down <laughs> yep. yeah like, you know that was across the island yeah but it was not <laughs> but it's a small island <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I can see why it was nominated. I mean, where like it's this is it's 1942, so America is fully <laughs> entrenched inside of World War Two. You know, it's now 1943. I mean, not. I mean, we're entrenched. I wouldn't say fully. Well, it's but it's, it's 19, 1940. It's, it's 1942. Well, yeah, but it's 1943 by the time that this movie get makes it to the Oscars. Sure. So it's like like war's over in 45. America's definitely in World War Two. Yeah. Like yeah. So um. So I can. I can I can understand like how it like hits home mm-hmm. for for this crowd mm-hmm. and it's I think it is still well made I just it's just like a solid three out of five for me it's like a yeah see it if you see it if you want but if you don't you're not gonna miss like your life will not be incomplete I mean yeah but you could say that about it you could say that about all movies I see that about part. I say that about ninety percent of the movies that we have watched for this show yeah see it if you want it's it didn't change cinema history. It, you it know, it's that it didn't though. I don't, know. I don't know. It really didn't. But that's why. Give me some fun facts on Wake Island. We got a lot of movies to go through. Sure, I will give you all of those fun facts. When the battle began, there were 449 military personnel on the island and 1,221 civilian workers. When the garrison surrendered, 52 military and 70 civilians had been killed. Japanese dead were estimated between 700 and 1,000. Um, not sure about those numbers. I don't. I don't honestly see how like between seven hundred and a thousand Japanese were killed. I think. I think those are State Department numbers. Yeah, that sounds like some State Department numbers. Um. Uh. That sounds like a fun fact more for the actual history. Yeah. Look, there's not a lot. Okay. <laughs> okay. Most of this. Most of this is the actual history of the battle because it was much more interesting. Uh. In real life, most of the survivors were sent to Japanese prison camps, but ninety. Eight civilian construction workers were held on the island to help the Japanese with their defense. After the Americans conducted a successful air raid in October 1943, the f- civilians were machine gunned to death. A lone survivor escaped and later carved a message on a coral rock on the mass grave where they were hastily buried. He was later captured and beheaded. When the island fell in 1945, the Japanese commander responsible for the massacre was executed. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The end of the movie shows soldiers fighting to the bitter end but in real life they surrendered after this after surviving the first wave of japanese attack uh also they started filming this movie before like while the battle's going on oh great yeah so they're like well, obviously we'll fight to the bitter end makes movie comes out yeah. oh and uh oh no turns out no <laughs> well i mean they surrendered uh, after the first attack so i would imagine like they already knew they lost the island by that point probably probably um the the uh pacific theater of world war ii is one that I am not totally familiar like it's not where my interest in World War II lies so uh, I have no idea but maybe I'll find out one day anyway let's move on to King's Road directed by Sam Wu 
Wood, written by Casey Robinson, based on the novel by Henry Bellaman, starring Anne Sheridan, Robert Cummings, Ronald Reagan, and Betty Field, nominated for Best Picture, Director, and Cinematography for a Black and White Film. This movie also won zero awards. The story is about the dark side and hypocrisy of a provincial American life as seen through the eyes of five children as they grow to adulthood at the turn of the century. Um, there are two things that I thought were, I guess three things that I thought were made this movie worth watching. One, Ronald Reagan, just because it was Ronald Reagan and we're going backwards in time for us. So it's like, <laughs> look, the president in a movie. How fun. Um, so there was that. There was Ronald Reagan screaming, where's the rest of me? that I highly enjoy I I highly enjoyed that kind of delivery spoilers for King's Row but he his but he's legs missing get half amputated of them. yeah his legs get amputated and he doesn't know so he like wakes up and he's like where's the rest of me um I thought that was pretty great um and also the main theme of King's Row is what insti- uh what inspired the main title music of Star Wars and so you don't really have to watch the movie to get that you can just listen to the main theme but you could totally hear it yeah you can yeah movie's fine it's it's pretty it's pretty well whatever i like it's just like it's just being white americans at at the turn of the century and they grow up and they're like wow one sure one's rich were we sure were pretty pretty wealthy good for us one's rich one's poor one's a woman one's missing his legs one's dead yeah you know as life usually as life usually leads you you know so i it was uh yeah i remember texting you as i was watching this movie and i'm like i i'm watching this movie and I have no idea what's going on. Like this is this is one of the more convoluted stories that just was like like I've joked before. Like sometimes it feels like people are in a writing room and they're like, "All right, we need five plot points. Here's a dartboard. Go at it." Mm-hmm. And that's what it kind of felt like they did here. It was like someone was like, "I know this perfect idea for a TV show in which here are the character arcs," and somebody was just like, "We'll make that into a two-hour movie." Yep. We don't and need we're a not TV going show. To explain anything? No, sorry. Yep. Just get out of here. Yeah, it was. It was. I had a hard time tracking why I was supposed to care about any of them. And I because think you don't have enough time with the characters before stuff happens. No, you don't. It's just like kind of stuff just kind of happens. But I'm not. You're not endeared to anybody right. for for a good chunk of the film. And so it, you just kind of watch these like the lives. Un- unfurl in front of you and you're like yeah all right it's it's fine it is pre- it is a pretty movie i can understand i can understand its cinematography um nomination but besides that it's just kind of it feels like one of those movies where you know that sometimes like we need 10 th- slap this movie on there too why don't you yeah it's kind of that's kind of what it feels like <laughs> we ran we ran out of filming days for this actress ah kill her off camera it's fine yeah it's fine who needs her anyway she spit in my coffee yeah whatever yeah so uh, i don't have anything else to say about this movie nobody does. i i watched these a little bit ahead of you so my memory is fuzzy on some of them so and king's row is definitely one of them yeah. so just give me some fun facts initially screenwriter casey robinson thought it was madness to tackle an adaptation of henry bellingham's controversial novel as it featured such topics as incest adultery and suicide all of which would never get past the hayes coat indeed 
Joseph I. Breen, who ran the Hayes Code, wrote an open letter declaring the novel's unsuitability for movie treatment. Robinson and producer David Lewis met with Breen to discuss his views and agreed to remove as much offending content as possible, pitching the adaptation as a coming-of-age tale for an idealistic young doctor who is amazed at what he sees in the world around him. It took several drafts, but eventually Breen was satisfied Robinson's take on the material. Well, that explains why this movie just really felt disjointed. Yeah, well, that's that explains a lot, actually. Yeah. Ronald Reagan was unable to capitalize on the success this movie brought him as he was immediately called into service in the U.S. Army. He was initially rejected for active war duty due to weak eyes. He was transferred to the Air Corps and put in charge of making training films at the former Hal Roach studio. Well, I mean, he kind of lucked out then, didn't we? Or maybe America lucked out. No. Am I right? No. Am I right? No. Jelly beans? Am I right? No. Okay. Eric Wolfgang Korngold had written the scores for several important movies for the Warner Brothers, including The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Korngold was told he was to write a score for this movie. According to uh, Brendan Carl, in his biography of Korngold, the composer, thinking this was another royal story, set about writing the celebrated fanfare theme of this movie. Despite the wrong assumption, Korngold decided to keep the to keep and develop the theme into what has become a classic score. Yep, that's uh, that sounds right, because the music doesn't exactly fit the the story of the film um that 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 sounds correct that (laughs) that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of sense to me as well corn gold's great though corn gold is one of like the you know the top three like you know i would say you know each generation has their own like each generation has their like their like the like the people and eric corn gold is like of the golden age of of movies you know responsible for i mean friggin king's row like helped create star wars and it's in its weird way so like that's like his his legacy lives on mm. so good for him that was three right mm-hmm. wonderful let's talk about the pride of the yankees also directed by sam wood written by joe swirling herman j mankowitz currently you can see him uh, a movie about him on netflix called mank um and paul galico uh, starring gary cooper Teresa white uh Teresa wright my apologies walter brennan and babe ruth himself nominated for best picture best actor for cooper best actress for Wright, writing for an original story writing for screenplay black and white cinematography art direction for black and white film sound special effects and music this movie won best editing story revolves around the life and career of uh baseball player lou gehrig um and uh i loved it i think that it is one of the actually i felt it was one of the better movies that i have watched for the show in not quite some time because there's always good movies here and there but like i like thoroughly enjoyed it like will go back and watch it again myself one day as opposed to just like okay yeah that was good i'll never watch it again though like i'd pop this on like without without question um yes i know that we're from before you even get to it i know that we're from boston and i know that there's a rivalry between the red sox and the yankees and that i shouldn't like a movie that so prominently features the yankees and a famous yankee player but you know what none of us we weren't alive then and you know if i can like babe ruth i can also like lou gehrig even though babe ruth also played for the red sox so i guess that's okay but guess what he wasn't that great of a player when he 
played for the Red Sox. He didn't really take off until he played for the Yankees. There, I said it. Gary Cooper was his normal Gary Cooper self, I felt, in this film. You know, like he's a, not that Gary Cooper phones it in, but like, I always feel like this is kind of like, he's always like acting behind a veil or a piece of glass or, do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, he's just like, I just have a hard time engaging with Gary Cooper. Um, But I do think that his affability comes across very well here. Um, And he actually looks quite a bit like Lou Gehrig. Um, And so I, uh, so I thought that was actually a, a touch of nice casting. I thought Teresa Wright was awesome. I thought she was so good. And she's also in Mrs. Minivere and which she is also very good, but I thought she was pretty spectacular. Um, and I loved that it was actually Babe Ruth in the film playing himself. Thought that was just a fun bit of stunt casting. Cause I was watching, I was like, wow, the guy that got to play Babe Ruth really looks like Babe Ruth. And then I, the credits rolled up and I was like, wow, that actually was Babe Ruth. I'll be danged. So, all right, tell me why you hated this movie. Um, because unlike you, I am a very, I'm a good Massachusetts born person. You left the state. So I'm still in New England. That doesn't the Red matter. Sox are still my baseball team. Nope. Uh, are you wearing a Red Sox shirt right now? No, I'm wearing a rent shirt. It just happens oh, to be okay. red. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you were like really going to hammer home. <laughs> um, it's, it's very schmolsy. And to be honest, he didn't do anything. Yeah, he was a good baseball player. You know, okay, so was Babe Ruth. I mean, they made a movie about Babe Ruth. At least he had records to his name. Yeah, Lou Gehrig, you know, played in X amount of games in a row. Too bad. It's been it's been done. It's been beaten already. Yeah, he never took a sick day. Good for him. I, yeah. I love the fact, like, his record, they were like, it's going to stand for the ages. It, it lasted, like, 20 years, man. Yeah, but 20, I mean, 20 years is still a good record. I mean, this movie was look made, how long, like, look how long barely after his death. to break. I, I know, but, but that's different. And, that, don't, just and like, that took this, steroids. This is just people showing up for a game, though. You're right. This is, like, the perfect, this is, this is like, the Luke Gehrig's the kid that got perfect attendance at the end of Yeah, and you hated that kid. School. Yeah, well, I mean, sure, I guess. Yeah, did no, you, you absolutely, you no, know, you did. You hated that kid. You were like, dude, no. take, take a day off. No, that's fine. Like, good for them. Like, whatever. So, um, it is, I will, I do agree that it was schmaltzy, and it does that, it does that thing where you're like, I'm gonna cram their entire life, like, their, their entire life. Their entire two-hour movie. Unextraordinary life that does nothing. Yeah, you, yeah. you played a game well. Okay, yeah. good for you. Yeah. He was a nice person. It was about I him mean, being. Yeah, like, but we're gonna make movies about nice people. Y- you don't like movies about people who aren't nice. Also, well established. Yeah. If he was a terrible person, you'd be like, "This movie was terrible." Yeah. Because but I want nice I don't people like to movies. accomplish something. He did. He accomplished baseball. He accomplished. He didn't create it. Named after him. No. Like no. in the pantheon of baseball movies, I keep hearing how this is like towards the top, and this is easily not even close. I would have to actually sit down. And and, like, look at all the quote-unquote baseball movies. But, you know, just thinking about it offhand, I don't think I would even put this in top ten. Yeah, see, I would. I think this is top five baseball movies. Yeah. You, sir, I hate total, baseball. I, I dis- no, I love baseball. No, you don't. Yes, I do. <laughs> give, me the, give me what is in your top five baseball movies right now. Go ahead. Field of Dreams. Okay. Uh, the Natural. Okay. Uh, M- Moneyball. Yeah. Pride of the Yankees and... 
Hmm. Fever pitch? Can I say fever pitch? Is that allowed? I mean, if if Field of Dreams is, I mean, you could you could argue Field of Dreams is a little bit more of a baseball movie than Fever Pitch. Yeah, but maybe I mean, like, could I say? Could, does the Sandlot count as a baseball movie? Yeah. Because I'd count that. Because oh yeah, then I count the Sandlot. Um, Rookie of the Year is good. Rookie of the Year is great fun. See, I now love you're Angels now you're past five. What has to leave? Uh Fever Pitch. I'm gonna I'll ditch Fever Pitch and I'll I'll ditch Fever Pitch for the Sandlot. Yeah, and I'll ditch mm, oh i might you know i might ditch pride of the yankees yeah see in the outfield but that's that's um that is um <laughs> but that is uh that's nostalgia talking like because like i haven't watched angels in the outfield and i don't know how long yeah but it's a great like, movie it, yeah it's also I remember a great being baseball super movie fun. stuff happens there are stakes yeah. this guy hits a ball and doesn't take a sick day until <laughs> until he retires because he's sick <laughs> Uh, no. Like the one sick no, day no, no. he takes, he's like, that's it. I got to call it a career. Nope. All right. No. Nope. Uh, no, I'll ditch the, I'm, you know what I'm going to do? This is going to hurt. I'm going to ditch the natural for, uh, I'll ditch the natural for, um, um, what do you call for angels in the outfield? Because just because I've seen I've seen the natural once, it's very good. But I but I think I I'll, I'd keep I could keep Pride of the Yankees over over it. Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, Angels in the Outfield, Rookie of the Year, Little Big League. There's five better right there off the top of my head, and that's not counting like Major League, Major League Two. Yeah, I'm not gonna count the Major League movies, but that's only because I had a hard time thinking of their name. When I was coming up with the, when I was coming up with titles, and I was like, "Shoot, what?" Because for some reason, Police Academy jumped into my head. Right, that famous league. baseball movie, Police Academy. Police Academy. Yeah. They have a softball team or uh, something. Eight yeah. Men Out. Yeah. The Babe. Oh no, The Babe. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, there are a lot of good baseball movies yeah. out there. I'm surprised this Moneyball is... was not is not on your list. Well, Moneyball, you already stated. I was coming up. Oh, with, okay. I was just pretty much listing baseball movies that were already that you oh, had sure. a hard time oh. for some reason oh, okay. remembering. Exactly existed over, well you only asked for my this. five i did i you only asked for my five you didn't ask me well, to name you, all the baseball you movies that in were your out top there five. like i'm just saying these are already better than than the decidedly unremarkably average pride of the yankees okay can i can i ask you something though um would i still think if that if, if it was if about a like red sox player no i was gonna say if it's like pride of the blue jays or something like would you like would you care yeah it's like, still it was, just average. Yeah, there is nothing about this movie that's remarkable at all. I I think it it's, it it might be the the schmaltzy quality of it that makes it so um beloved. Just because it is it's it's feel good until it's not right. Because obviously he has ALS, so it's not. Yeah, you know. but then the movie ends. Like it doesn't even give you time to be sad. Exactly because it's 1942 and they don't have time to be sad. They're at war. Then they they need things that make them feel good. They had they have things that make them feel good and then remind them <laughs> that life and death are inevitable. <laughs> like in end of movie. Give me some fun facts on Pride of the Yankees. Uh, while filming the movie, Teresa Teresa Wright, who played Gehrig's wife Eleanor, wore the actual bracelet Lou gave to Eleanor on their fourth anniversary. Eleanor brought the bracelet to set to be used in the movie. The bracelet is made up of seventeen medals celebrating seven world championships and six All Star game appearances 
Gehrig made. The bracelet is now displayed in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Bristown. Cool. Released in, named after Gary Cooper, Cooperstown. It's not. No. no. <laughs> Released in 1942, there are exactly four black men and one black woman who appear on screen during the movie. Only the train porter and shoeshine man have lines. That's not really a fun fact as so much as a sad fact. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Woo. Director Sam Wood shot the famous final speech at Yankee Stadium where Gehrig had made it. Soon afterwards, the movie ends with Lou disappearing into darkness behind the dugout. The studio wasn't content with that and wanted to corn it up by adding the by adding a final kiss between Gehrig and his wife. Wood said he told them what I thought and got the ending back again. <laughs> uh, there was probably some expletives thrown around in that meeting. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. That was three, right? That was that three was unremarkably fun facts. Fantastic. Speaking of unremarkably fun, let's talk about Random Harvest, directed by Marvin Leroy, written by Claudine West, George Froschel, Arthur Wimpress, based on the novel by James Hilton, starring Ronald Coleman, Greer Garson, Philip Dorn, and Susan Peters. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Coleman, Best Supporting Actress for Peters, Director, Writing for Screenplay, Art Direction for Black and White Film, and Music. This movie won zero awards. An amnesiac World War I veteran falls in love with a music hall star, only to suffer an accident which restores his original memories but erases his post-war life. Um, I thought the art direction of this film was kind of great. They were going for this, like, like weirdly noir, like, kind of absurdist um, kind of thing. Lots of deep shadows and twists and turns and all that stuff with the asylum and stuff at the beginning. It was nice and moody. And the cinematography was really worked for me. And then, um, and then, then the rest of the movie started. <laughs> And then I was like, well, all right, cool. Um, I couldn't get over how much Greer Garson uh, or how much Meryl Streep looks like Greer Garson, like the whole time. Mm-hmm. I'd pause the movie and be like, by God, that looks like Meryl Streep. Um, I would even I even sent it to some people. I was like, who do you think that is? And they're like, Meryl Streep. And I'm like, you're wrong. It's Greer Garson. Um, it was just cool. Um, yeah. You want to talk about schmaltzy, though? This was schmaltzy. Like this was this this was a little this was a little much. Um, and I had a hard time even uh, believing it. You know, she's like, here's this guy who's clearly not well and this woman who's like, I'm going to fall in love and marry you. And then, yeah. you know, like, so. Because love fixes everything. Yeah, love, love lifts us up where we belong. Love fixes everything. Uh, that's not so, how it is. Yeah. That's not how then, the song goes. That's not really how it is either. You're right. So, um, yep. So it was fine. I thought everybody, like, did a good job with what they were given. Anything, anything about it was bad. It just kind of was a movie that. That also felt like that ah, we need 10 throw random harvest in there um and yeah so that was that that's that movie why do you hate love timothy i don't hate love at all what happened to you in your life that made you hate love as much as you do um i learned what you thought love is and i and it just turned me off from love completely you're what's wrong with the world okay what do you think about random harvest i look aside from aside from another plot that kind of might have probably worked better in um, a long format style storytelling which seems to be a theme this year mm-hmm. I thought it was good like yeah the the premise is a little over the top you know especially when you especially when you get to the point where he gets his memory back goes 
to America, becomes like a business tycoon, and then the wife that he forgot about is now his secretary because she tracked him down, you know. But mm-hmm. but it's great. She loved him. She wanted to find him. She realized, like, he doesn't remember her, so she's like, I still want to be with him, and maybe he'll remember. And it's it's great. It's heartwarming. It touches, you know, it taps into it taps into really good emotions. And you're right. The the set designs, the the overall look of the film looks really well. You have the deep shadows to kind of drive home the fact like he's he has amnesia, so he doesn't quite know who he is. I don't understand how you can watch Random Harvest and be like, it's just the right amount of schmaltz, but watch Pride of the Yankees and be like, that's too corny. Their love doesn't matter. Blah, I didn't blah, say blah. their love didn't matter. I just said what he did did matter. Yeah, the, right. Yeah. This guy yeah. is out trying to keep the world safe during World War One because it's not even World Two. It's World War One, and and he come, you know, he he loses his memory in the process. Still manages to pick up the pieces of his life, find love, gets hit in the head again, loses that memory, and has to start over again. Like this poor guy goes through the ringer, all from having the gumption to save the world from whoever shot Franz Ferdinand that started this whole war. I'm pretty sure it was Johnny Knoxville. Probably shot Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the immortal um, <laughs> yep. Johnny Knoxville. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's fine. I thought the most interesting part of the film was the very beginning with the parents mm. that were not really the parents. And they were, like, looking for their son because that felt real to me, right? That was, you know, like, that was something like, oh, you know, we get a lot of people in here. Maybe you, he won't recognize you, blah, blah, blah. And, it, and he not, didn't. And it, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So. But, I, I, like I said, I agree with you. Like, the, the, the overall story, I think, again, would have been better in like a mini series format not necessarily like a a long running TV show but a mini series format you could have fleshed out a few things better maybe shown like the accident that landed him in the asylum true that's true but they didn't do that kind of thing in 1942 when this was made no they didn't so that you know that's what we got but i thought i thought overall it's a it's a good movie um probably probably a little bit above average to average but it is much better than you give it credit for no, I like it's again. This is a three out of five for me. See it if you want, but if you don't, see it, you made not, it sound like a two point five out of five. No, and that's where it, my issue is. Yeah, no, no, no. It's just a, it's a three out of five. It's just a see it if you not like none of it's bad. It's just a movie, and and it just I I'm looking at it from from the point of view of an Oscar film. You know, like it's just there's just not enough there for it to be nominated. Oscar to, loves love, unlike you. I don't Titanic. disagree with yeah. the first half of that. <laughs> with the first half of that. Um, all right, give me some fun facts on, on Random Harvest. we got a lot of movies to go through. I mean, we don't have that many more. This is like the fourth movie already. We have six more movies to with, talk about. You know who else agreed with me? The People. With a 12-week continuous run, it set a house record as the Radio City Music Hall's longest-running film to date. Demand for tickets was so great, they had to open the box office at 7.45 a.m. each morning. The theater manager told Mervyn Leroy it could easily have played another 12 weeks, but MGM's parent company, Lowe's Incorporated, pulled it to play it in their own theaters. Well, I guess the, the, you're finally with the people? I am the voice yeah. of the people, as I've been saying for years. The, vo- the voice of the people in 1942 and 3. You know who else agrees with me? Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder revealed on Turner Classic Movies that this is his favorite film and that he also considers it, considers it to be the 
the most romantic film he has ever seen. What? Yep. What? What? What is happening? What? You hate love. What is actually? We've gone over this. Oh my gosh! Give me the third one, please. You know who else agrees with me? No, that's not. No. Okay. (laughs) This movie is very different from the book, but it couldn't have been made following the book closely. It's done in a linear fashion, not jumping back and forth in time like the book. Most importantly, readers aren't aware that Paula and Margaret are the same woman. Something impossible with the same actress playing both of them. In the movie, the audience knows the important the important point halfway through, but that's saved for the last page in the book. As the book sounds better. No. Yeah, the nope. book sounds better. I like, I like that. I like what a knowing, good twist. I like knowing that it's her. Nope. That sounds like a Shyamalan twist just waiting to happen. That's a little that's upsetting. A, right. So it's an unnecessary twist, what you're saying. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on to The Pied Piper, directed by Irving Pitchell, uh, uh, starring, uh, no, written by Nunlally Johnson, based on the novel by Neville Shute, uh, starring Monty Woolley, Roddy McDowell, and Ann Baxter, nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor for Wooly, and Cinematography for Black and White Film. This movie won no awards. Stories about while traveling in France during the Nazi invasion of 1940, an Englishman is entrusted with the care of a group of refugee children. Um, I thought it was, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, the tone was maybe a little light considering the time and content in which the film was made. Like, it's, you know, it's made in like the, the middle of World War II and it's like, Nazi invasion, la 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 la. I mean, it um, has it has heavy moments in the movie. I think you're just it counting do, that. It it does. It, it kind of it gets there, but even like by the end when the when they're just like sitting reading the newspaper and it's the Blitz and you know everything's shaking around them and they're like ah, la 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 la. Um, I I couldn't tell if it's I couldn't tell if it was tongue in cheek, if it was if it was realistic, if it was just a movie. You know what I mean? But I really liked it. Like for out of five like i like i thought that the transformation of wooly from bah, humbug to like i care about it, like all these things and like that was that that really worked for me and you know and they're they're kind of his journey as he like continues to like pick up kids along the way <laughs> to save and protect them like the pied piper like it's like it was really like that was real that was really fun for me and uh he really carved out he, a niche as that kind of character though he did he really did Wooly like he does it so well and because we've seen a couple of films with him now where he is that kind of person and like I thought the I thought the dialogue was really snappy and the film moved at a good pace and and I really and I really liked it and you're right and it's heavier moments contrast well with its lighter moments I just thought like if this movie was made in the 50s or 60s or whatever I I probably wouldn't notice its tone the same way I'm just thinking that it's like in the middle of the war you're taking the war pretty like nonchalantly in some places but you know sometimes you gotta just laugh about the terribleness that's going on around you just to keep sane so um so yeah the re- it, it was pretty it was a solid it was a solid movie for me i would i would i would tell people to watch this oh absolutely like i i uh, was pleasantly surprised with how good this movie was and i will i will go you one better and say that i mean you could say that this movie was done like just like in the very, very early 70s uh, to the point that it also had Roddy McDowell in it again. This gives me bed knobs and broomstick vibes. Like if you... Total bed knobs and broomsticks vibes. Like if you yes. told me that this movie inspired bed knobs and broomsticks, I'd be like, okay, yeah, I see it. So, you yep. know, an elderly person taking in children during, you know, during World War II, during, 
during like the German invasion of of France and and Britain and and you know you have the light moments and you have like the very heavy moments like both movies do and I thought it does it very well it you know Monty Woolley is really good a very young Roddy McDowell you mm-hmm. know is really good um, I would say that while he is still a curmudgeon he obviously he obviously cares for the young girl like from the beginning because he's helping her with her homework by teaching her about the state of Rochester yep yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes I I <laughs> I agree. Um, I, I did like that. Ru- that like it's a running gag. Like in a, th- that that bit was that bit yeah. was good. I hope that's where he sent them. I think so. I think he did. I will the say I don't. Rochester. I don't recall like you were talking about when they were like the blitz is happening and like they're just like reading the paper and that. It's the very. It's the last scene in the movie. Is it? All right. I yeah. thought for a second like you were confusing it with Mrs. Minivere. No, no. This it's the he goes to like his club or what you know like. Oh. His Men's club. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And they're like, "Oh, where are you were?" He's like, "France." Do you have trouble getting out of the country? Not really. Yeah. Like, you know, like so on and so on and so forth. Yeah. So, but I did think it was like haunting, even because it was, like because there are some, like I said, there, like you know, when you were originally saying it until like halfway through your review, like there are some pretty heavy parts, like the whole uh, raid and the dead on the roadside that that mm-hmm. he walks the children through. It's not a laugh riot at the whole time. But I think it is um, at the beginning. It's and, definitely, but I guess it. it and then it, it kind of turns moves, from there. It does turn, but I mean, like even like towards the end, I was thinking of like that blitz scene at the end. Like he still has his wit about him. Mm-hmm. Like there's still a bit of wryness and a smile by the end of the film, even through all this tragedy. Which I guess is also telling of like what the kind of person that he is as a character and what you kind of need to be to to live through something like that and right. be okay with it. So I think I I think. My favorite, because while while the state of Rochester was a good running joke, I think my favorite running joke was whenever they picked up a new child and the children would be like, "Oh, they don't speak English. They don't, huh? No, their name is this. And how do you know that? They told us, but they don't speak English. That's right." <laughs> Uh, and I still say we missed the golden opportunity to have Monty as uh, Santa in Miracle on 30th Street totally absolutely 100% yeah Yeah. Uh, go ahead I was going to say he definitely would have beat that guy with his cane oh yeah that's the Monty Woolley style (laughs) of Santa (laughs) Um, fun facts yeah so and because of how lighthearted this film is I decided to keep the fun facts nice and lighthearted the original fairy tale was based on the disappearance of the children of the Dutch not German village of Hamlin. Although at the time they were thought to have vanished magically, it is now believed children left to join one of the children's crusades and were taken into slavery. Yeah, nice and light. Yep. Yeah, you said it. This film yeah. was released just seven months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Neville Shute's mm. original novel was a huge bestseller at the time as the world grew to accept that it was at war again. Th- there was literally like four mm. facts to choose from, so... Gotcha. Yeah, although none of those although out of happy. all of them, uh, the first one would have stuck. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Totally. Okay. Okay, well, let's move on to Yankee Doodle Dandy, directed by Michael Curtis, written by Robert Buckner and Edmund Joseph, starring James Cagney, Joan Leslie, and Walter Houston, nominated for Best Picture, Supporting Actor for Houston, Director, Writing, Original Story, and Editing. This movie won Best Actor for Cagney, Sound, and Music. Story revolves around the life of the renowned musical composer, playwright, actor, dancer.
dancer and singer George M. Cohen, um, basically responsible for the modern musical for the American comedy. musical, the, the the American musical, right? Uh, this movie was great. I loved it. It was super good. It was Cagney Cagney rules. I mean, I think that was, we kind of knew that um, that his his massive talent is you know on display here. Um, it moves through his life very quickly for a short amount of time. It is definitely designed to be a not propaganda film necessarily, but it's definitely but it revolves around um, Cohen getting an award from FDR for his contribution to like the American spirit that he did and, that he did his absolute hardest to avoid. Yeah, but the FDR did or Cohen? Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Well, he got one anyway. So uh, oh no, he just so it's he just tried to avoid getting it from Roosevelt because he was a Republican. Yeah. Well, you know what? There you go. It doesn't really show that part. Um, but I did know. I don't know if this is in your fun facts or not. But that little like tap dance he does going down the White House stairs mm-hmm. at the end was um improved. Yeah, he was just supposed to walk down the stairs. But he so I really liked it. There are parts of it that are definitely dated. Like so, Cohen uh is from Rhode Island. Woo woo. Represent. Um, even though I'm not from no nope, no nope, too late. You've already but, left Massachusetts. You are now a filthy Rhode Islander. Yep. Okay. So George M. Cohen represent. Woo Um, and uh, you guys also but, have uh, H. P. Lovecraft. So we do. Actually, I live about 15 minutes from Lovecraft's house. Um, you can still. You go couldn't get that one. I couldn't. No, it wasn't for sale. I don't care. Uh, yeah, <laughs> everything's for sale for the right price. It's also haunted. You have teacher money. It. It's haunted. Yeah. Even better. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not better. That's worse. Um, and so, so, um, so, uh, I totally lost my train of thought. What was I now saying I'm about trains? Ah, uh, yeah, you forgot your flash drive. <laughs> um, Cohen, Rhode Island. Oh, so you know, so it started. You know, his family was a like a you know they were a vaudeville act and you know traveling you know like a traveling actors and so like it, it's got some blackface in the movie and it, you're like oh, blackface yeah um but the only it's one of the only times where i i actually was like okay i actually understand why it's here in the film because this is a biography about george m cohen and this is the part of the story to which they're doing their act and that they um and that they did do this and so this is his like this is history and it's not we're not ignoring the fact that it was done like it's showing us and i mean of course it's the 40s and so they're not like thinking about it that way at this time and so but from a modern viewer i like to know that that was something that they did because it's history even though it's awful and i don't agree with it i mean i don't think you still need to put it in just because it happened like i'm sure at some point in his life he wasn't waving a flag that wasn't in the movie and he's always constantly just waving a little flag in the corner like all all the time no um yeah i thought it's well constructed i thought the musical numbers were great uh i thought um i thought that cagney's like i thought that his actor singer dancer you know his trifecta was really on display here especially his dancing um i thought that that was excellent uh i liked that bit when he's dressed as an old man and like the woman at the beginning (laughs) like doesn't know that he's that he's not elderly and he's like oh you just move like this and he like does a a thing and she's like oh my god (laughs) like how are you doing that you're gonna kill yourself 
Yeah. How are you even doing that? Um, so yeah, I thought, I thought all of that was, I thought all of it was great. I really, I really enjoyed it. And as a, a sense of forties patriotism, like I can, like I can understand it's kind of like it's, it's importance, I guess at the time that it, that it came out. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Uh, why did you hate this movie? I didn't hate it. I will say my biggest complaint about it, and it's more of the life of Cohan than, than it is the movie, um, is it is about 7,000 times too patriotic for me. Yeah, it is. It, 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 I think if this movie did not come out in the middle of World War II, we might not see that type of framing device in the film, but it's specifically designed to like infuse but, I mean, the audience with But patriotism. even then, like, that's, that's his life. Like, one of the knocks on him was, like, he couldn't write anything if he wasn't waving a flag. And to some extent, that was true. You know, and, yeah, so he gives us, you know, he gives us some of the great or some of the well-known, you know, songs from our childhood, Grand Old Flag. Nope, you said great. Yep. Yankee Doodle. Um, but, I mean, other than that, like, I think this movie entirely rests on on Cagney. If Cagney doesn't sure. do well, this movie fails. And the fact that Cagney, like, knocked it out of the park makes this movie really good. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean, it, that's, that's basically it. Like, the overall, you know, yeah, some of the, like, stage set pieces were done very well. Although, you know, I don't necessarily know how, how you would get those in a theater show. You know, that seems to be a little bit too expensive. Like, really? You're telling me you had live horses in a theater show? That seems a little expensive for, for theater? It's, it's true. It's not unheard of, though. It's not, like, it's not, it's not like they've never done anything like that before. No, but it, I mean, it still seems a little too expensive for theater. Especially since that was one of his early ones, you know? It's like, yeah, hell, but don't, War don't, Horse, don't, they had an electronic horse. Like, it wasn't... Yeah, but true, yeah, but, but, but horses were aplenty when that, when that was happening like it's not like every like it's true this is, this is before they all boarded ships and went to the west correct exactly yeah um right yeah that was a lord of the rings joke i can't <laughs> believe you just made a lord of the ring i can't believe you just made a lord of the that's literally rings the only scene i remember from <laughs> from return lord of the, the king yeah <laughs> that's still though i'm actually impressed with you <laughs> like stop the podcast <laughs> Palmer, Palmer made a lord of the rings joke Oh my goodness! All right, give me uh, give me some fun facts on on Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, Joan Leslie portrays Mary Cohan, aging from eighteen to fifty seven throughout proceedings. Leslie turned seventeen during the production of the film. The fact that she was still attending school during production caused numerous delays. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah, actually, really impressive. Good makeup. In nineteen fifty nine, a statue of George M. Cohan was erected in Times Square in the heart of Broadway's theater district, with the inscription at the base under his name. Give my regards to Broadway. It is the only statue of a theater performer anywhere in Manhattan. I've been to Times Square. I haven't seen this. You've never seen It's still there. Pretty sure. Yeah. Um, it's not on my fun facts, but did you know where the, so the play uh, Little Johnny Blue or whatever the mm -hmm. name of the show was that Yankee Doodle was in, do you know which theater that premiered in? Like where in uh, current geographic New York? Oh, no, I don't. It is. Was it the same one where we watched Kill Mockingbird? No. It is Madame Tussauds Wax Museum. Really? Yeah. That's so strange. Yeah. No, I think all of the theaters that you see in this sh in this movie are no longer there. Okay. That I think makes sense. I think one I think one or two of them have new theaters uh, built on top. I think one of them was the Amsterdam, but I honestly don't remember. At the Academy Awards in 2018, when Guillermo del Toro was accepting his Best Director Oscar for The Shape of Water, he 
paraphrase a quote from the speech from his from this film ending his speech. I want to say like James Cagney once said, "My mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my brothers and sisters thank you, and I thank you very much. Thank you." It's beautiful. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro loves movies. He does. He also he does. loves monsters and lying to us about scary movies. <laughs> Listen, if that's all Guillermo del Toro lies to us about, I'm happy. (laughs) Crimson Peak is, quote, not a horror movie. It's a love story with ghosts. Lies. That movie scared us. (laughs) Scared us with how good it was. Unlike The Magnificent Ambersons, directed by Orson Welles, written by Orson Welles, based on the novel by Booth Tarkington, starring Joseph Cotton, Agnes Moorhead, many years before her, uh, many years before Bewitched, and Anne Baxter, nominated for Best Picture Supporting, Actress for Moorhead, Cinematography for black and white film and art direction for black and white film. This movie won no awards. Story revolves around the spoiled young heir to the decaying Amberson fortune who comes between his widowed mother and the man she has always loved. Um, I thought it was well shot and kind of met my expectations, I guess. But um, it, it just kind of, again, it was just kind of a movie. Um, it's just like maybe maybe right for its time, but now it's just like wow, look at those rich people and their rich people problems they sure they sure have got them rich people problems good for them like i'm just not i wasn't feeling sorry for them at any particular point in time i had a hard time uh i had a hard time emotionally connecting to anybody in the film i didn't think that they they just weren't they weren't um, magnificent they weren't no they just weren't really emotionally hitting any of the right marks um for me um so nailed it to the marks brother yeah <laughs> but uh i i did think that but i think that like uh, it's an orson welles film so obviously it looks good mm-hmm. you know it's well acted it's you know it's the the production design is beautiful the houses are gorgeous and you know costumes are good and all that stuff and it kind of coalesces together well um and i think like if you're a fan of orson welles or if you're going through his filmography then you should see it i would not say it's a bad movie and it's not a bad orson welles movie it just for me personally didn't really do much yeah i mean this is going to be short because i pretty much agree with everything you say except for the fact like i if you're going through his filmography obviously you need to see it to complete it otherwise i would definitely say like if you don't care about completing his filmography you can definitely skip it because it's just it's bland and you're right you don't really care about any of the characters they're not particularly you know decent people but i don't yeah it feels like it feels like it has themes and tones similar to Citizen Kane, but without the connection. Yep, I agree. Because I think you care about Charles Foster Kane yeah. in his own messed up way, and I don't, I didn't care about the Ambersons. Yeah. And so, you're right, because it is, and I mean, Kane is more about the the rise as opposed to the, the fall of fortune, mm-hmm. and so, um, it's It would it, dovetail you know, nicely. It They would, actually, they would complement each other, you know, um, nicely as a, as a as if you were having a viewing party or something but I can see why it didn't win anything because while like a lot of it is fine and good there are stronger candidates across all of the things that it was nominated for absolutely yeah. okay. RKO chopped 50 minutes of the film and added a happy ending while Orson was out of the country the footage was subsequently destroyed the only record the only record of the removed scenes is in the cutting continuity transcript well how about that the recutting of the film caused 
caused a deep rift in Orson Welles' friendships with Robert Wise and Joseph Cotton. Cotton later wrote several letters of apology to Welles, and the two later reconciled. While Welles and Wise, however, remained on acrimonious terms for some 42 years until Wise was invited to come to the stage by Gilbert Cates when the Directors Guild of America honored Wells with its Lifetime Achievement Award in 1984. The former rivals ended up shaking hands as the crowd rewarded them with a standing ovation. Lovely, lovely. Orson Welles later described the 88 minute of this a version of the film as having been edited by a lawnmower. <laughs> uh, say what you will about Orson Welles, but he was a character. Oh, I, I absolutely adore Orson Welles, and if you really want to see, like, personality, go back and watch his appearances on the uh, on the Dean Martin Celebrity Roots. Okay. Because, like, you think of Orson Welles as, like, this dry person because he is an actor, and he, he is, but that sort of dry thing works perfectly in in comedy. That's great. That's great. I actually will go back and watch those. I assume they're on YouTube and, and the whatnot? Uh, probably. I saw them on Amazon many moons ago, so you could probably still find some there. Cool. Cool. Alright, let's talk The Talk of the Town, directed by George Stevens, written by Erwin Shaw and Sidney Buckman, starring Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, and Ronald Coleman, nominated for Best Picture, Best Writing for an Original Story, Best Writing for Screenplay, Cinematography for Black and White Film, Art Direction for Black and White Film, Editing for black and white film and music. This movie for a black won and white no film. no awards. This movie won no awards. Oh. Isn't it funny that all of these were like for all black and white films, but not a single movie that we watched was in color. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this movie won no awards. Yeah. Uh, do you know what they were? No. no. Okay. Well, technically um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, but that wasn't colorized until like the eighties. Yeah, that doesn't count then. All right. So uh, nominated for all those things, it won no awards. This movie is about an escaped prisoner who has to prove his innocence to a stuffy law professor with the help of his of a spirited school teacher um <laughs> a spirited school teacher who at no point is ever shown teaching in school or being spirited no i know she's pretty spirited um so this what this this was blah for me although i was interested at the beginning when i was like oh carrie grant you're playing a bad guy a eh? how interesting you've actually got quite a a devious <laughs> look in your eye and oh, all that oh, stuff wait and, no you're the good guy oh wait oh no never mind jk lol wasn't happening um i did think some of the comic timing was very good you know there's a lot of like like where am i going who's where who's what the you know and there's like a you know that kind of deception-y stuff at the beginning but by the by the end i was kind of like well all right that again was a movie that i watched mm-hmm. good 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 see it if you want to if you don't want to you're not really missing anything and this is i watched this one quite a while ago so i can't say that i remember much else about it so your turn. Uh, again, you're absolutely wrong. Uh, this movie is great. This movie, from from when you read the like the blurb about it, you're like, all right, this is going to be a good like you know possible mystery, like who done it? Was he? Did he actually set the fire or what? Mm-hmm. And then like the first fifteen to twenty minutes, all right, well the first like two minutes is him breaking out of prison. After like the montage, this is great. It catches you up on the story in like thirty seconds with a montage at the beginning, so it gets that out of the way, and then there's a quick prison break and then there's like 10 to 15 minutes worth of like great comedic scenes that reminds me of noises off like everyone's yes. coming in and out of the scene quickly because they're trying to hide and stuff is getting shuffled around and then you have the morning where everyone from like it almost seems like everybody from the town is barging into the poor man's house and then it goes yeah. and then it goes into like a good 
a good study of this person who has spent his life learning and teaching law, but at the same time is so confined by like the the literal translation that he might like he might not be right in his in his worldview. And you know, without knowing about it, he's kind of he's kind of having these philosophical discussions about the law with this guy who this entire town is looking for, and because he's from out of town, doesn't know who he is. And he ends up trying to help him at the end. It is it is a really good movie, and the fact that it had nothing to do with World War II or you know rallying around the country because of World War II makes this movie really stand out out of these ten movies. Yeah, yeah. Unlike Pride of the Yankees, which also has nothing to do with World War II. Uh, yes, it does. They talk about World War II in Pride. No, of they the don't. Yankees. Yes, they do. No, no, no. They do. Wrong. And the guy does nothing with his life. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to this guy. He had um, even even like having a disease named after him. The disease was already there. Yeah, and it's also pre- uh, uh, you know on the scale of things you want to accomplish, having a disease named after you because you had it. Um, it probably not not high on anybody's list. Especially since it wasn't just like discovered in him. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, she's the most famous there's, person to have. There it. is also a going At theory. There's actually um, a modern theory that he didn't actually have Lou Gehrig's disease. That it was misdiagnosed. Really? Yeah. That's so sad. <laughs> anyway. Uh, um, but yeah, Talking the Town is really good. You should check it out. I think the acting is wonderful. Uh, Gary Cooper, I think, while he plays the same good guy, like, I thought he... I thought he was going to be a bad guy. I thought his wasn't. character was good in this. I really liked Ronald Coleman and and the actress. Like everyone really did good jobs in their roles. And the the story is the story is is written well and has a good sense of knowing like when the comedy works and when to ease off and switch gears a bit. So definitely uh, check it out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, give me some fun facts on Talk of the Town. Lloyd Bridges' tiny role was one of 20 film appearances he made in 1942 alone. Wow. Whilst many characters find Leopold Dilg's panache for adding an egg to his borscht unique, so much so that it becomes a means of determining where his whereabouts, it was not an uncommon practice to add an egg to borscht in Poland and in Mennonite communities in Eastern Europe. <laughs> the studio considered filming two different endings, with Gene Arthur pairing off with Cary Grant in one and Ronald Coleman in the other and letting the audiences decide by voting in sneak preview which one they preferred. However, in the papers, director George Stevens all of the screenplay drafts contained the current ending. In one draft, an additional unrelated scene was added, but dropped during production. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So fascinating. Yep. Yeah. Alright, let's move on to the 49th Parallel, directed by Michael Powell, written by Emmerich Pressburger and Rodney Ackland, uh, starring Leslie Howard, Lawrence Olivier, Anton Walbeck, and Raymond Massey, nominated for Best Picture and Writing for Good Screenplay, not, uh, Movie 1, Best Original Story. Uh, story revolves around a World War II U-boat crew uh, who are stranded in northern Canada to avoid internment they must make their way to the border and get into the still neutral U.S. Um, I thought if you knew the history to this movie it's a cool piece of film history that it was purposely made as a propaganda piece to get like United the United States interested in war or in, the war in Europe and they were like hey this could happen to you let's and, and that kind of thing and I like the it being I never from liked the Doctor Stupid, right? And that, like, I liked the it being from the perspective of the German U-boat crew, as opposed to you know, and like Canadians, as opposed to the the U.S. kind of being at the forefront. All of that part is cool. The movie itself is a movie. Oh yeah, 
it's it's very by the numbers and bland. Yep, it, I it, I didn't find it particularly interesting to watch. I found the story about the movie more more to my fascination. Mm. Yeah, for a movie for a movie that has this kind of setup, you kind of expect more. And it, yeah, like it, like this is almost just like a travel log movie, and it's not a particularly good one at that. No, nope, no, it's really not. Yeah. So yep. All right. Well, that's all I have to say. So give me some fun facts. On a trip home to Wales, Niall McGuinness was stopped and searched by the police. He was arrested as a German spy when the police found a photo in his wallet of McGuinness dressed as a German sailor's uniform standing next to what appeared to be a U-boat. In fact, it was a publicity photo from his role in this movie, and he spent several days in jail before documents were sent from London verifying that he had been in the movie. Well, okay. Yeah, Peter Cushion had gone to Hollywood before the war, but things hadn't worked out too well, and he ended up doing a variety of odd jobs, which is how he came to be making props on this movie. One day, he had the job of making flags for the model boats to be pushed around a map, and he had a lot of swastikas and laid them out in his digs. They were found by his landlady, who promptly called the police. That's hilarious. Great Peter Cushing story. <laughs> the deception, the depiction of U-37 in this movie is fictional. U-37 has known has no known sailings around Canada or what was then still Crown Colony Newfoundland. The real U-37 was the sixth most successful boat of the war, U-48 having the highest score, and was eventually scuttled on May 8, 1945 at Sonderberg Bay in Denmark, despite the sinking depicted in the movie. Well, there you have it. 49th parallel. What a movie. Let's move on to the Best Picture winner, Mrs. Minivere, directed by William Wyler, written by Arthur Wimpress, George Frosell, James Hilton, Claudine West, based on the novel by Jan Struther, starring Greer Garson, Walter Pidgeon, Teresa Wright, Dame May Whitty, and Henry Travers. Nominated for Best Actor for Pigeon, Supporting Actor for Travers, Supporting Actress for Witty, Sound, Editing, and Special Effects. This movie won Best Picture, Best Actress for Garson, Supporting Actress for Wright, Director, Writing for Best Screenplay, and Cinematography for Black and White Film. Story revolves around a British family, which is struggling to survive the first months of of World War II kind of goes from there. Hey, life is normal. This is us normally all the way into the descent of World War II and the Blitz. Um, I didn't think that I was going to necessarily take to this film uh, because I was like, you, you're like, oh God, here we go. Okay, another like we can do it war film and like everything like that. But I really but then liked Clarence it. Clarence showed up. But then Clarence showed up. Clarence. Um. I really liked it. I thought it was well-paced, acted. It wasn't overly schmaltzy or over the top. Um, it like it had its schmaltz. Don't get don't get me wrong, but like it. But I thought that it it depicted what actually felt like a normal family instead of a movie family. You know, like I didn't feel like I was watching Seventh Heaven does World War Two or something like that. That might have been I, better. That could have been. Um, and I I thought that I thought that the um. I thought that the cast, like I said, I thought the cast was strong. Um, I wouldn't say that like the cinematography like blew me out of the water or um, anything or anything like that. But it, but it was a, but it was a, it it hit home for me. Even though I'm not living in the middle of World War II as a really as a strongly made film that it has a very particular purpose, and I liked that it wasn't about America mm -hmm. like in World War II, like a lot of the. American 
American World War II films are about the, a lot of those are about the army or, or at least the armed forces. And this one is like, boom, we're a family. Let's yeah. deal with it. So. Uh, yeah, it's a miss. Um, I think the side characters are better than the main cast. Clarence, the vicar, most of the townspeople. Um, I will say that the reason to watch this movie is really just like the last 10 minutes, like the blitz and then mm-hmm. the fallout from the blitz that kind of wraps up the movie. Although I find the vicar's speech to be weird. Like while I liked, I, I absolutely love the set piece of the bombed out church because yep. I don't think we, I, I can probably, I can't recall offhand like how many times I've seen like that kind of set piece, even during like a World War II movie. And if I really thought about it, I could probably count on one hand how many times, but I thought it was a very interesting set piece to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt the vicar's like call to violence to be very like, while while you could argue that it's against probably like the worst human being imaginable, I still think it's a little like in the opposite direction of religious beliefs. Yeah, but they're Anglican, you know, it's just different. <laughs> it's just, it's just different. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I understand what you're talking about. It didn't ring untrue for me. It felt like more like, like he's standing in his church and it just as like, it's kind of broken him in its own way. So for him to, you know, for, you know, to say what the people almost want him to say as uh-huh. maybe as opposed to what he needs to say, um, you know, because also this comes after the death of somebody, you know, you know, uh, important and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of emotional turmoil happening. Yeah, so. it works in the frame of the movie and it's the best part of the movie. I just felt it like true to, true to character. I just felt it was a little off. Sure, sure. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Give me some fun facts. First movie to receive five acting nominations at the Academy Awards. Wow. The Vicar's final rousing speech was printed in magazines like Time and Look. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt ordered it to be broadcast on on the Voice of America, and copies of it were dropped over Europe as propaganda. The speech has become has come to be known as the Wilcoxon speech, in tribute to actor Henry Wilcoxon, stirring delivery of it. Greer Garson's Best Actress Acceptance speech lasted an incredible five and a half minutes, making it a Hollywood record. Over the years, the length of Garson's oration has become exaggerated to the point where some sources now claim she spoke for 30 minutes. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm going to say that probably wasn't true, the 30 minutes, but... Well, no, uh, five minutes is five, a, that's a long a acceptance. Yeah, that's a long acceptance speech. I mean, you would think so, but we just lived through the 2021 Academy Awards where they you sure did. Where they weren't stopping anybody. They're just like, let me recount what my quarantine was like <laughs> yeah. day by day, minute by minute. <laughs> like, oh no, oh no. Well, before we get to the 1943 Rewindies, let's remind everybody that you can find us on Twitter at Academy Rewind and at Timothy PG13. You can rate and review us on iTunes and find us all other places that podcasts can be found. And you can subscribe to all Thoughtbubble Audio podcasts at thoughtbubbleaudio.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash thoughtbubbleaudio. The 1943 Rewindies, all categories um, we must choose from these 10 films and uh, I'll go first. Yep. Starting with supporting actor, I'm going to give to Henry Travers for Mrs. Minivere. He was the son. Um, I really liked his trans- his like transformation from like, hey, hey, I'm just a good guy until like he has like these like deep, dark, you know, um, you know, soldier's eyes you know by the end of the film like i've seen things i thought it was a i thought it was a good performance like from start to finish i'm gonna go with coxon from mrs minivere the vicar the vicar okay right on good job uh supporting actress i'm going to give to Teresa wright for pride of the yankees uh i'm going to give it to talk of the town just all of talk
talk of the town. Yeah. Supporting actress. Yeah. Every <laughs> actress in there was great. You're just really, you're getting really loosey goosey on like who you're giving awards to. You're like, I'm going to give it to that piece of sidewalk over there. What a good piece of I mean, sidewalk. Fine. Gene Arthur, you happy? Yes, I am happy. Um, production design, I'm going to give to Random Harvest because I quite liked it. Uh, production design, I am going to give to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Cool. Costume design, I'll give to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, I will also give to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Makeup and hairstyling to Yankee Doodle Dandy, mostly because that, you know, mostly because, you know, they went turned a 17-year-old into a 57-year-old and it actually looked really good. Yeah, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, that was makeup and hair, that was makeup and hairstyling. Yeah. Uh, music, I'm going to also give to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, I'm going to give to uh, um, King's Row because it was original. Okay. All right. That's fine. I'll remind you of that when we do Moulin Rouge. You can, but it won't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Visual effects, I'm going to give to Mrs. Minivere. Uh, uh, Wake Island. Okay. Um, cinematography to Random Harvest. Random Harvest, yeah. yeah. Editing to Pride of the Yankees. Uh, editing to Talk of the Town. Okay. Uh, sound to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Actor to James Cagney for Yankee Doodle Dandy. James Cagney. Actress to Greer Garson for Mrs. Minivere. Uh, actress to, um, crap, I had it a second ago. Uh, what's her, because you want names, what's the, apparently. What's the, mo- what's uh, the movie? Greer Garson for Red Harvest. Oh, okay, so both Greer Garson, just for different movies. Yeah. Um, best writing to Mrs. Minivere. Uh, best writing to Random Harvest. Okay, and best picture, I'm going to give to Mrs. Minivere. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Okay, solid. I accept that. I think that those are great choices. Those are great choices all around. Yeah, although I thought we it was going to be We did it, everyone. Okay, well, but you changed your mind. Good for you. All right. Well, that's it for the 1943 Rewindies, and it's actually it for this season Woo-hoo! of Academy Rewind because uh, there were no 1933 Academy Awards. This was the last time that the Oscars eligibility period was spread over two different calendar years, which created the longest time frame for which films could be nominated, which was 17 months, well, back in the day before COVID. So, <laughs> I was going to say, um, really? Yeah, so not anymore, but, you know, but uh, so there was an August 1st, 1932 to December 31, 1933, so there were no awards in 1933, so we are done with this season. Oh, actually, no, this it, season. it still wins because we had awards last year. Cor- oh, yeah, yeah. It was fun. just an extended period this year by like a month or two. Gotcha. All right, well, so movies coming up uh, in the 2012 next season, The Artist, The Descendants, Midnight in Paris, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Moneyball, War Horse, Tree of Life, Hugo, and The Help. And now for the 1943 Rewindies. And by 1943, I mean all of the Rewindies from all of the threes that we just do at the end of 1943. <laughs> from the 43rd season of the Rewindy. <laughs> oh, God, no, please. No. <laughs> um, so these are the same categories, Best Supporting Actor, all the way through Best Picture. And we choose any of the Best Picture nominees from any of the from any of the threes. Um, and so... Um, Anything is on the table. This is probably the hardest. These are, hard, I think, the hardest rewindies to do out of like any of them because you're just like, the how do you? you no, know, no, just like these these last rewindies because like, how do you compare to Kill a Mockingbird oh. to Argo or to you know The Godfather or you know Gandhi or whatever? So it's gonna get hairy. Let's see. It's a what. tough. It's a tough job, but this is what we've been tasked with. It is what we've been tasked with. How do you? Um, how do you want to start? Do you want to uh, go by through... you saying a um, by you saying a category and us coming up with names? Uh, okay, I can do that. I guess. 
Yeah, all right. Whatever. I don't know. I'm just like still like I'm looking at I'm looking at some of my lists and I'm like, yeah, maybe maybe not that one. I don't even know anymore. It's all I still say we get a giant wheel, but no. <sighs> we don't have a budget for a giant wheel. We don't. So, um let's just do let's just do it this way and we'll start with best supporting actor I give to Marlon Brando in The Godfather. That is a very, very good choice that I am going to go with Marlon Brando and The Godfather as well. Excellent. Yeah, I just, I know it's, te- he's also technically the star of the movie, but I re- the, the movie's really more about Michael than it is no, wait, about. No, you're right. Get, get out of here with your, get out of here. I'm changing. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart gets it for the greatest show on earth. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Anyway, best supporting actress I give to Catherine Zeta-Jones in Chicago. Um, okay. Okay, I will give it to Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. Fine, a fair choice. Production design, I give to Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I thought you weren't going to give it to Lord of the Rings, except for one time. No, this is the rewind, this is the the three rewindies, that rule doesn't count. Uh, what is this? Production design? This is production design. I will give it to a Gangs of New York. Yeah, I was I liked their little box set there. That was I was close with that. Costume design I also give to the two towers. Uh I give it to Greatest Show. I mean Greatest Show on Earth. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, that's just why you like the greatest show on Earth. Because it's like close enough to the greatest show for you that you're like, whatever. It got robbed. Oh, oh my gosh. Um makeup and hairstyling I give to Lincoln. Uh, (laughs) Makeup and hairstyling, eh? Any time now would be good. (laughs) I mean, you would think that, but, uh, Le Miserable. Sure, okay. Um, music I give to E.T., the extraterrestrial. Get out of here. It's obviously Le Miserable. The music itself is good. Their performance is not always top-notch, so, um, no, it is not that. Visual effects I give to Life of Pi. Uh, Life of Pi. Cinematography, I also give to Life of Pi. I also give to The Greatest Show on Earth. Weird rules for yourself. What? Like, what? The Greatest Show on Earth, Best Cinematography. Yeah, it's editing. Cecil B. DeMille. Ah, it doesn't mean anything. No, it does. But uh, editing, I give to Argo. That would have been a good, uh, that would have been a good, good choice. But... Yes, because I actually thought mine out. Really? Did you? Did you now? Yes, I did. I am going to give it to Life of Pi. Okay, that's fine. I accept that. Fine. Fine. <laughs> Best sound I give to the two towers. Les Miserables. Okay. Uh, best actor I give to Ben Kingsley for Gandhi. I give it to Les Miserables. No, I give it to... No. <laughs> I give it to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Okay, that's fine. I was like, I swear to God, if you give it to, like, Charlton Heston for Greatest Show on Earth, I'll riot. <laughs> um, best actress I give to Nicole Kidman in The Hours. I give it to Nicole Kidman in The Hours. Okay. Best writing I give to A Few Good Men. Best writing, yes, definitely a good man. Good. Um, best picture, I give to The Godfather. Best picture, I give to To Kill a Mockingbird. Excellent choice. I really think when uh, at the end of the day, it's only those two that it can be. Um, like as the, some of these other movies are great. Django Unchained is very good. Argo <laughs> obviously won. Argo won Best Picture. It's also very good. Like Unforgiven, Gandhi. These are all like these are all well made, all well made movies. But really, when it comes to like you. You win over everybody else. Um, the Godfather and Kill Mockingbird are pretty much the only winners here. So yeah, all right. Well, uh, that's uh, that's good because they're playing us off. I have so many more people to thank. 
Too bad. Bye. Bye.